Sun Life Community Church came into being as the result of a compelling vision for a different kind of church, interested in what we call the Sun Life, experiencing and sharing the life of God's Son. Perhaps your heart is burdened these days. We invite you to allow the Word of God through the words of this message to bring rest to your soul and joy to your heart. Got your Bibles with you? Let me see them. Okay, somebody held up a purse over here. I saw that. (laughs) That that was a purse. That was not a... But, you know, we're in the spirit of the thing, so it was black, so we're going ahead here. What book of the Bible are we in? Acts. How far through it are we? Okay, last week we were working our way through 11 and... And uh, today, we're going to take a little jump. Let's ask God to help us with that before we uh, begin. Heavenly Father, you gave us a marvelous record of your working with mankind. You only told us a fraction of it. The Bible itself says if even all the books, if everything Jesus said and did were put into books, the whole world couldn't contain them all. Father, we thank you for what you did contain in this one. It's the things we need to know. Father, we thank you as we sang today that that every one of our lives is is a book that you are writing as well. And as we blend ourselves, all of our lives, the story that you're writing in every one of our lives individually is coming to the same point at this time. To open up your book to the acts of the apostles and to sense the the mighty hand of God working in this fallen, broken world. It's the same hand that is working today. We just don't know the end of the story today, but we can finish some stories that you've given us in the scripture. So help us to learn, to see, to remember, to understand, and to praise you for all you've done. And we ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we've been in Acts chapter 11. We got about halfway through it. And and today, we're going to just push right on into Acts chapter 12 as we continue our examination of the way Jesus Christ built his church in the very first century. Now, I'm aware. I'm aware that as we push on into Acts chapter 12, we're actually leaving 12 verses in Acts chapter 11 unaddressed. For how many of you will that be a problem? That's all? Think you can live without those 12 verses? No, so don't worry. We'll get to them next week. We're going to get back and get those 12 verses next week, but we're jumping ahead to Acts chapter 12, moving into it so that we can complete the story that the Holy Spirit is telling us through the writer, Luke, the story of Peter. Peter's story is pretty much wrapped up in Acts chapter 12. And those last 12 verses of Acts chapter 8 are really part of a different story. And so we'll come back to them next week and start on that different story. Here we go, though. Acts chapter 12, it's verses 1 through 19, a big section we're looking at, and we're going to read through it, 
the whole thing, but let's do it topic by topic, just like in some Bibles, before every paragraph or section, there's a little title. I put some titles here that you have on your sheet that maybe you can read and just kind of remember what's going on this week, just with a little bit of a synopsis, each one, and then we're going to read the actual scripture. But here's the first topic. We just call it a new persecution. See, there was one when Stephen was martyred, a persecution broke out. All of the believers who didn't live in Jerusalem fled. They took off. And we read through that and saw how God worked in, in establishing works throughout the, the empire, really, at that time. But now there's a new persecution recorded in verses 1 to 4. We just say, in this passage, we see believers imprisoned, James executed, Jews pleased, that's the unbelieving Jews, happy about this, and then Peter himself arrested. So here's how Luke gave us the actual story, beginning with verse 1. It says, it was about this time. It's a little bit vague about that time, the way the story is kind of jumping around a bit. But about this time, King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. So he wasn't just going to arrest them, put them in jail, but he was going to torment them, persecute them, possibly execute them while they were in prison. And to make that point, Luke tells us, he, that is King Herod, had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. I imagine that means he had John be, or James beheaded. I hope it was that. That would have been quick. If he were just sliced into pieces by the sword, that would have been horrible. It just tells us, had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword when he saw that this met with approval from the Jews. That would be his constituency. This is a political leader, the king of the Jews. He's not part of the Roman government. He's the king of the Jewish nation. And his constituents, who did not believe in Jesus, were pleased that Herod was stepping in and doing something about these believers. So when he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he, that is Herod, proceeded to seize Peter also. Now this happened during the festival of unleavened bread. That's the festival that concludes with the Passover meal. After arresting him, that is Peter, he, that is Herod, put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Quick, how many soldiers? Pretty good. Four groups of four. Now, even modern math can't mess that up. That's 16 of them all together. Now, the night before Herod was to bring him to trial... Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. This is now we read right on into Peter's rescue. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He, that is the angel, struck Peter on the side and woke him up. wonder how hard he had to hit him. Angels had to be careful about their immense power. But he struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. 
Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes, that would be his outer garments, and your sandals. So he's sleeping in his bare feet. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you, cloak around you, and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. Remember, Peter had a vision of that you know, sheet on the roof and, and got directions that way. He thought this was another one of those, like a dream. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them all by itself. Angel must have had a clicker. And they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Sherod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. How long would it take you to realize you've been rescued? <laughs> the chains fall off your wrist. You walk right past soldiers who are standing guard there, but they seem to be, you seem to be invisible to them. You walk all the way through the prison. Here's an iron gate, probably the last thing to keep everybody in, and it just opens by itself. And then you walk down the street about a block. And then your companion, the angel, leaves, and Peter looks around and says, My golly, I think I'm out. Sometimes we're slow to catch on to things, aren't we? Here now, in the next uh, section, we just call it the incredulous believers. There. Verses 12 to 17. None of them, none of the believers could believe that Peter had been freed. See, Peter had trouble believing it. We're going to see they had trouble believing it. So here's what Luke says. When this had dawned on him, <laughs> hey, I'm free. Where'd the angel go? I guess I'm on my own now. Where should I go? When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark. You know, when you read through the Gospels, there, there's just Marys everywhere. In Jesus' group, there's three or four Marys. Well, now here's a Mary. Sometimes in the Gospels it just says Mary uh, Magdalene was there and the other Mary. This might be one of those other Marys. Now we're finding out this is Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, so she didn't really open the door. She kind of must have peeked out or she just got to the door and says, who's that? Who's that? All she hears is the voice. When she recognized Peter's voice, though she knew his voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening the door. And she exclaimed, Peter's at the door. If you had been in the group and, and a young lady came running in and said, Peter's at the door, what would you say? Let him in. Did you let him in? What if he left to go somewhere else? You just, what, ran away? You're out of your mind, they told her. Boy, these are godly people. 
they were right in tune with God's going to work a miracle in our midst. I'm sure he's going to. She comes in and says, Peter's at the door. He's not in jail anymore. You must be out of your mind. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. That's kind of like saying his ghost. I guess his guardian angel that would look just like him or sound just like him. But anyway, that's what they came up with. It must be his angel. It says, but Peter kept knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. They probably thought it was, you know, the milkman coming early. They opened the door and they said, you'll never believe what Rhoda told us. She thought you were Peter. No, they were astonished. It really was Peter. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet. Now, he's an escapee, right? Quiet down. Soldiers are probably already following my footsteps through town. Quiet. He just motioned to his hand, told them to be quiet, and he described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. He says, tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, so the whole church wasn't there at that house. And then he left for another place. And that's really the last we hear about Peter for quite some time. Next part of the story, we just title, Herod Covers Things Up. Just the last two verses, verses 18 and 19. He had the guards executed. Here's what Luke says. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. So you get the impression they, they didn't even all night long. They, it never dawned on them Peter wasn't still here. Those two guys who were chained to him. Maybe they're whatever it was, it wasn't until morning that they discovered the prisoners gone and there's no small commotion among them as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Seems reasonable. They had failed at their duty. I read one commentator, he says that if Peter was there for the purpose of being executed, usually a guard who fails in his task is then receives the same penalty that the man who escaped was going to receive. They were executed. Now, Luke goes on to tell us in the next few verses of uh, chapter 11 that uh, King Herod died a horrible death just shortly after this event. He steps in. He kills James, one of the greatest of the apostles. He arrests Peter, planning to execute him. And after Peter has escaped, Herod leaves town. He goes up to Caesarea, which was kind of another, an alternate palace for him. And he gives a speech And the people say, trying to win his favor, the people say, oh, it sounds like God himself. He speaks with the voice of the gods. 
Now, the Romans believed their emperor was divine, so here's the Jews kind of giving Herod that same sort of treatment, and it says because Herod just received their praise as though he was divine, he was struck dead. Took him a few days to die, some internal illness, but a horrible death. And it would seem, as we read through the story, that the persecution period died with Herod. And so as chapter 12 concludes, or 11, Luke's account of these events concludes, as does his account of the activities of the Apostle Peter. Next week, as I said, we're going to go back to chapter 11, those verses we skipped, and Luke will be turning our attention to the story of the man Saul, who would soon become known as the Apostle Paul. Verse 17 that we read just says, Peter left for another place. And that's all it says. He went undercover somehow. And that really serves as Luke's transition statement. But before we make that transition, which we'll do next week, I want us to focus on this story that I just read. The whole thing. And I want to share with you several key observations that arise from that account. Sort of like the detectives that we're to be when we read God's word and you read it and you ask the questions, who, what, where, when, why, what is happening here? And a part of inductive Bible study is to come to the answers of what is happening here. And when a story is being told, we're looking for the details. Maybe the whys a thing happened or who was involved in it. And this morning, I would just share with you three observations that came to me after reading and analyzing the story that we just read together. Here's the first one. First observation. Another martyr. Who is the first? Stephen. Another martyr, James, had been added to the list. Now let's just uh, remind ourselves who this James is. This James was the brother of John. The two fishermen, James and John. John the beloved. John the one who wrote the gospel. John who wrote the book of Revelation. John who wrote the three little letters with his name. James was his brother. James was one of those four fishermen that Jesus had called to follow him. Jesus said that he would make them, James and John, Simon and Andrew, he would make them fishers of men. James was one of the inner three. There were several circumstances where Jesus only took three of his 12 disciples to minister for him and with him. James was one of those. The other two were Peter and John. James got to see things that no one other than Peter and John and Jesus got to see. James saw Jesus raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. James got to stand on the Mount of Transfiguration and see Jesus glorified in the presence of Elijah and Moses and hearing God speak to them from the cloud. James, Jesus called James and John sons of thunder, their nickname, because they were loud and boisterous. And once they asked Jesus to call down fire from heaven 
to punish some wrongdoers. James was a powerful eyewitness of all that Jesus had done and said. And just like that, his life had been snuffed out. The strength of the church had been diminished. This was no little loss. And many of the believers must have questioned it. Why would God allow one like James, John's brother, Peter's associate, why would God allow him, of all people, he's one of the few who saw certain things that he can testify about that nobody else can. You can't let one of the three go. Peter, James, and John on the mountain. Peter, James, and John watching the, the recovery from death of this little girl. Why would you take James away? We certainly would have questioned that. Why did God allow this to happen? Isn't our Heavenly Father powerfully protective? What makes us think that he will protect any of us if he chose not to even protect one of the Lord's own apostles? What exactly? What exactly can we expect in dangerous times? Because James, James, one of the Lord's own, had been added to the list of martyrs. And what does that make us think? We just observed this morning that it happened. Here's a second observation. Peter was soundly sleeping the night before his likely execution. How many of you like Peter? How many of you kind of have a notion, you sort of have a feel for what he was like? Godly guy, solid guy, turned by the Holy Spirit into a spokesman for Christ, a powerful guy, a spiritual guy. So let me ask you, doesn't it seem like that would be a night to spend in prayer? <laughs> Likely your last night on earth? Likely the night before an agonizing death came upon you? Wouldn't you be in prayer asking God for grace, asking God for protection, asking God to, who knows, maybe send an angel to just take you out of there? <laughs> Hadn't Jesus already told Peter that his death would come by the horrors of crucifixion? Perhaps Herod right now, had planned to turn him over to those hated Romans. Perhaps this was the time that he would experience the agonies of such a death. The church members were up in the middle of the night praying for Peter, and here was Peter not even praying for himself. What do you make of that? Do you see a supernatural, spirit-given peace being demonstrated? Don't you think that the soldiers guarding him took note of his condition? Look, the guy's just sleeping, sleeping like a baby. He even took his shoes off, so he's not planning somehow to run out of here. 
Don't you imagine that Peter had had opportunity to tell them that he had taken up his cross long years earlier and that his life was completely given into the care of his Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. His peaceful sleep that night surely gave credence, that is, believability, to those words. Well, with Peter, it seemed to work out, didn't it? Peter was protected and delivered, wasn't he? Maybe some of those guards actually saw the light and even put their faith in Peter's God before Herod took their lives. I tell you, that would have thrilled Peter to learn of that, to know that, to know that he was able by his own life to exhibit spiritual truth that these men knew nothing about and that he could share his faith, his confidence in the one who owned his life. My Savior owns my life. Herod doesn't. Whatever happens to me, my life is in his hands. What a testimony. What a story. I could believe that some of those 16 men might have been moved by it. Especially when he disappeared. And say, God, God has been involved in this. Here's our third observation now. Get ready for it. Sometimes God's work is hard to accept. Even when it stares us right in the face. Can you imagine yourself to be part of that all-night prayer meeting, praying fervently with your sisters and brothers in Christ? We don't know what they were praying, but they were praying certainly for Peter, praying in light of what had happened to Peter, and you're praying there, and here comes Rhoda running breathlessly right into your prayer circle and announcing, Peter's at the door. Of course they were surprised. Wouldn't you be surprised? And they found what she said hard to accept. After all, Herod had personally arranged for 16 men to guard Peter. Surely, as I got thinking about it this week, it, I was reminded, and it makes all the sense in the world to me, that surely Herod... Herod had no desire to experience an embarrassment like the Roman governor Pilate had experienced on Easter morning some 14 years earlier. In that instance, remember, trained Roman soldiers had allowed Jesus' disciples to come and steal his body while they were sleeping on duty. At least that's the story that had been told. That was the final opinion that the Roman government took. And those soldiers would have been killed, except some Jewish men with money paid off the, the officials. Herod. Herod, Luke tells us, even arranged for Peter to be chained to two soldiers who were standing on either side of him. 
No such debacle would take place as long as Herod was in charge. No, sir. As we like to say, it would take an act of God to get Peter out of that prison that night. So when Rhoda burst into the room with her news, it really did seem too much to believe. The believers gathered there immediately came up with other explanations for what she had heard and what she had shared. And yet, an act of God had taken place. And there was Peter in the flesh, standing at the door, staring them, as it were, right in the face. And they were astonished. It was hard to accept. God's direct actions always are. Think of this. How many educated, scientifically trained people over the years who who have even found themselves impressed with the person of Jesus have found it hard to accept his miracles? They simply cannot believe that he came from heaven. They cannot believe he was born to a virgin. They cannot believe he healed the sick or restored sight to the blind. They cannot believe he walked on water or stilled the storm. They cannot believe he brought back anyone from the dead. And they certainly cannot believe the Easter story. You see, they are naturalists. And thus they have no room in their minds or hearts for anything supernatural. And though they might come across some writings of Jesus, some teachings of Jesus, though they might be impressed with the goodness of Jesus and the, and the manners of Jesus, they leave him, spiritually speaking, knocking at the door. Even as those early believers initially left Peter. Let's be sure we don't join them, ever. When the Bible tells us God has done an awesome thing, let us not say it can't be. It can't be. It must be the writing of some exuberant religious leader. When the Bible tells us some extraordinary thing that God has done, do not doubt it, even though a part of your mind might say, nothing that I've been taught actually prepares me to accept this. It's beyond the natural. It's supernatural. God is at work in that. And so there. It's not bad. (laughs) That wasn't bad. Peter could have enjoyed that while he was just marking time on on the door. So here we go. Those are the three observations I'd make. And we can find ourselves perhaps in the the midst of them. But here's one spiritual directive. That's what I would call it. A spiritual directive as we close this message this morning. Now this spiritual directive, this... It's not a command, order. It's a directive though. It's a thing to follow if we're really in tune with what the scripture is telling us. This is not illustrated by this story. But this story, just like almost every story in the book of Acts, provides an opportunity for me to share this directive. So rather than sharing it, every single story we tell, that we read, that we discover, 
I've chosen to share it this week. And here's one key spiritual directive that comes into play in this story and comes into play in every biblical account of a working of God in our world. And here we go. It's a directive by voiced again and again. Some of you are going to be right out here and say, yeah, yeah, I've, I've heard that. I've heard him say that. He says that a lot. Well, I've voiced it again and again in cell groups, in conversations, in various writings, probably even in several of the sermons I've preached over the last 50 plus years. But this morning I'm sharing it with you, with us who are right here now. I want you to take it to heart. Because most false teaching, or at least much false teaching, has arisen in Christ's church and much confusion and disappointment has entered into believers' lives because this directive that I'm going to mention to you has not been heeded. And here it is, in a box. Don't build doctrine upon God's doings. Specifically, don't build a God-always doctrine upon one of God's amazing one-time doings. In other words, don't fall into the trap of saying God-always simply because, in your knowledge, God has done a thing once. Little children do that. (laughs) We know that. We always, they say. After we do one special thing, take them out for ice cream after church. Next Sunday, what? We always go out for ice cream. (laughs) One event has become a doctrine. Little children are good at that. Our pets are good at that. If any of you have cats, have dogs, especially dogs, Dogs are just tuned into the way of the universe more than others. You always, they communicate after a singular fun activity that you've involved them in. They will even remember the exact time of day that you did it. And they will expect you to do it again at that exact time tomorrow. Took them for a walk. Gave them a treat. Rub their head. You always now. The one-time event has become a you always doctrine. Little children do that. Our pets do that. Spiritually sensitive believers do not do that. Remember, though Peter was rescued, James was not. I'm sure the church people had prayed equally sincerely for James. You see, certainly praise and thank God when his doings bring particular benefit or blessing to you or to a loved one or to the work of God in the world, but don't turn his singular one-time doings into full-time doctrine. To where you say, because God did this, God always 
works this way. God always responds this way. Sometimes he doesn't even respond the same way in the same situation in your own life. Don't pretend that you now know and can tell others how God works. Don't start claiming things. Don't start claiming things in the present or in the future based upon how things have happened in the past. Remember, our God is mysteriously purposeful and he's unceasingly creative and he's brilliantly tactical. Why he does what he does? What are his plans for your life, for our church, for this world? how he frames the moment and when he chooses to carry out that thing are all part of his individual will. All we know for sure, and we know this for sure, he is working at all times and he is working in all things. And that he is always working for our good. That's the doctrine. But we can't say, and God worked for my good in this situation, in this way, and next time I'm in a situation like that, I'm going to just claim and believe that he's going to do the same thing. That's not good. That's you messing up. That's you creating truth that isn't truth. But you can be so sure that you have it figured out that when it doesn't happen the second time the way it did the first time, you you can lose faith. You can become doubting. You can say, what's wrong with me? Why was I this way then? And how come? See, you're trying to build a doctrine out of just an action that God has taken. Let that action remain a testimony. A testimony of God's goodness and grace. A testimony of how he intervened in your life at that time. And just rejoice in that. Share your testimony. But don't turn it into a truth that says, and since he did it this way for me, I know you're in a situation like this. He will do it for you. Just just trust him. Just claim it. Just hold on to it. See, that's going way, way beyond what's proper, what's accurate. Doctrine we find in the scripture. Doctrine are statements of truth that God has given to us. Doctrine is not and never should be what we figure out based upon what has happened. So that we can say, he always. Our human flesh wants to be able to say always. Our human flesh wants to know, before this thing works itself out, I know how it's going to work out. Or we try to give counsel to other people. Put their mind at ease because we're telling them, this is how God works. This is what God will do. This is how it's going to turn out. We don't know any of those things. What we do know is whatever it is, if you belong to God Almighty through faith in Jesus Christ, if his Holy Spirit is in your life and is leading you through this life, we know that God himself is with you at this moment in this circumstance and he is working according to his own brilliant will to accomplish things 
that will be to your good. That's what we talked about last week. That's doctrine. That's truth. But don't take a testimony, something you personally experienced, just like Peter. If Peter were an American pastor, he'd probably be traveling all through the United States talking about how to get deliverance from prison. Because God doesn't want any of us in prisons. God doesn't want us any, you know, how to get delivered. He'd say, well, here's the six or seven things that, first off, you go to sleep. (laughs) Don't fret yourself over it. You, You know, and you try to look at it and build steps and principles until we have God absolutely, you might say, backed into a corner because we've figured him out so well that he's just got to do what we're telling people he always does. That's terrible. Sensitive believers never do that. Let's not do that. You see, what we can know, we can never know what or how God is working ahead of time. Our faith must always be in the fact of his working, not in the what or the how of his working. Time will show us the what and the how. Maybe. But the fact that he's working, the Bible has declared. And we can rest in that. You see, I have no doubt that Peter was as surprised as those who were praying for him that God chose to deliver him. I imagine that they were praying that God would grant him the same courage and grace that he granted to James because Peter was likely facing the same outcome James was facing. Oh God, you preserved James through that time. We know James didn't lose faith. We know that James went right up to that moment where he was executed. Those who were standing there said, maybe even like Stephen, his face just had a glow on it. Maybe he even caught a a glimpse up to heaven and saw the Lord. But James wasn't saying, oh God, if you don't deliver me, I don't know if I'm going to follow you anymore. I'm sure they were praying that Peter, who was known to be a little on again, off again. I'm sure they were praying, oh God, just sustain him. God, don't let Peter lose heart. Let Peter know how much he means to us, how much his testimony, even his failure for the Lord and and knowing the Lord brought him back, how much his whole story means to us. Let, Let him, don't let him doubt at all. Keep him in your care. Give him grace. Give him strength. Give him hope. I would believe that's the way we should be and would be praying if we were praying for Peter right now. That the things we know would honor God, the things we know that God would have us do in any situation would in fact be done. That he believes, he trusts, he's not giving up, he's not quitting, he's not condemning, he's not shaking his hand at God. Oh God, just be whatever Peter needs. That's generally how we pray in our garden of prayer, isn't it? Oh God, just be God to us. Don't let us lose heart. Don't let us lose faith. Let us keep on keeping on. Whatever the need might be, just provide it according to your will. But the real need is that we find the grace of God sustaining us through trouble. And we pray for one another. 
I believe they were praying for him that way. And I'm sure that Peter fell asleep that night confidently content that God was working in his life and in this circumstance according to God's own good and perfect will. And that whatever God chose to do would become one more stand-alone event in the further story of Christ's church. And the way that it worked out, it certainly did, didn't it? A one-time, glorious, miraculous, unbelievable, almost, release from prison. The people alive that day, I'm sure, talked about that. Peter knocking at the door for the rest of their life. What God did. What God did. Let's us just be committed to our God's grace and strength and wisdom and will in the midst of whatever circumstance we're in. And like we saw Paul saying last week, I've learned the secret. The secret of being content. Trusting God, no matter the circumstance. Peter would have said, me too. Me too. The guards looking at him would say, either he's crazy or he's in touch with some reality we know nothing about. And how good to say we're in touch with the reality that they know nothing about. But praise God that we are. And so here as we wrap up this message, here's today's final thought. The great stories of the early days of Christ's church have not been retained in the scripture to teach us doctrine. Unless there's a message in there where doctrine is given, the stories themselves have not been retained to teach us doctrine, but to demonstrate to us the incredible commitment of our Abba Father to all those who are Christ's own. Amen. Amen. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we see this morning that you are you are committed to us. You will never disassociate yourself from those who are your own. And, and Father, we rejoice in that. We have no idea as the future unfolds the details of our lives, the way that circumstances will come, the, the kinds of situations we, we might find ourselves in. But Father, we know you. We know that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and, and we can trust you regardless of what men might do to us, what circumstances might come upon us. Father, help us to stay focused on the main thing. Our faith is in the Almighty God. Our trust is in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for us. And our fellowship is with the very Spirit of God who is with us in the midst of everything. Father, forgive us for when we try to figure you out and say this is what God always does. That's a human failing. Forgive us. Help us to more say this is the way God always is. And we can trust him and we love him and we draw near to him in worship and praise and we encourage one another to do the same. We ask this now in Jesus' name and for the sake of the church he's building.
We hope this message has inspired you to live the sun life together with us. If you are near Apple Valley, California this weekend, we invite you to join us in person Sunday morning or through our live broadcast. All the details are on our website at sunlifecommunitychurch.com.